Good morning. My name is Danielle Morrow, and I'm a member here of Redemption Church, and I will be reading today's scripture, which may be found in Esther chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and I'll be reading through chapter 5, verse 8. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes." When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go! Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, 
What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. This is God's word for us today. Thank you, Danielle. And if you would, please pray with me here as we get ready to hear from God's word. Father God, what an incredible story this is. And we pray that you would use it even now to help shape us and to inform the way we engage with the world around us and with your people together as we stand with Christ in the midst of the world he is delivering us out of. God, be honored today. Make us more like your son. In his name we pray. Amen. Imagine sitting in a small little airplane, maybe like one of these two-seater airplanes, uh, as the engines are sort of roaring in your ear and you're soaring at like 6,000 feet of altitude in the air. And imagine there, maybe near the door, you see a pack, which they told you before you boarded is, is a parachute. Uh, you know, just in case anything happens. Just consider, what are the chances that you might be compelled to just, you know, grab that pack, swing open that door, and just jump right out of that airplane? Some of you thrill seekers might be thinking, I don't know, I mean, it sounds great, right? I'm not talking to you, okay? I'm talking to the normal people in the room. <laughs> Most of us would not be excited about this. We would be terrified it just seems way too risky, way too dangerous, right? We'll just wait for the plane to land. Thank you. But then imagine something goes terribly wrong. The engines seize up. That plane starts to shake violently. That nose starts to kind of dip down, and the pilot turns to you, and he says, listen, I'm sorry, I cannot save this plane. It is going down, and he hands you this pack, and he says, we have to jump. Now, that'd be a little different, wouldn't it? See, we typically are willing to do risky, dangerous things in order to avoid some greater danger. Maybe terrifying to jump out of a plane, absolutely. But if the plane is going down and we could be sure that we would perish if we were to stay in it, as dangerous as it may seem to jump, all of a sudden we'd almost start to feel as if we have to. In our passage today, Esther is put in what seems to be a similarly impossible situation. After finding out, sorry, after hiding her status as a Jew and then being appointed as the queen of Persia, once she finds out that all of her people are at risk of perishing in grave danger, 
she really, in a way, was the one Jew who's actually in a position to do something about this. But in order to be used by God to deliver her people, she would have to risk perishing herself in a different sort of way. And I think, church, as we look at this text together, what we're going to see in particular is that it may seem dangerous even to stand with God and his people. It may seem dangerous, but we must. We must. As terrifying as it may seem, and it can be, there are no safe alternatives. And maybe you can relate to some of these pressures in the text. It's not quite the same to be sure, but it is also not necessarily an easy time to be known as a Christian. Maybe you have unbelieving neighbors, friends, co-workers, family members who are just so opposed to Christ and his church that you regularly feel as if it'd just be far better, certainly safer, to just avoid the topic. Whether it is to keep your job to keep someone's respect, or just to avoid discomfort, you are tempted to stay silent because standing with God and his people, it just seems dangerous. Well, today I trust we're going to see not only that we must stand with God and his people, but also why we must and how we should. But first, I want to start by just kind of finding our place together in this story. Last week, King Ahasuerus, his highest-ranking official, a man named Haman, received approval to kill all of the Jews throughout the Persian kingdom. Yes, because just one of them, a man named Mordecai, refused to bow to him. So they determined the date. They wrote the edict. They sent it out, and and we see that confusion ensued throughout the whole kingdom. Well, this week's passage picks up with Mordecai, that one man who refused to bow, tearing his clothes, putting on sackcloth and ashes, and crying out, it says, with a loud and bitter cry at the entrance to the city gate. Now, sackcloth was a very coarse, it's kind of itchy and sort of meager form of clothing. And to put on this sackcloth and to cover yourself in ash was a fairly common means of sort of public mourning. In some ways, it's kind of similar to our tradition of wearing mostly all black to mourn the death of a loved one. But even though Mordecai once had a position of leadership at this city gate, apparently no one was allowed to enter there in sackcloth and ash. And so, so Mordecai's really making a scene here. He, he's showing up at his former employer after being fired, screaming and crying. And it wasn't only him either. Verse 3 here says, In every province where the king's command and decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews and fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So demonstrations like this were happening sort of all over the place, if you can imagine. But when Esther's servants tell her what was going on, and specifically that Mordecai was making this scene at the city gate, she sends a servant to him to try and address him. It says she's distressed. She wants to kind of help. And there's this back and forth correspondence between Esther and between Mordecai through via her servants here. First, she tries to send Mordecai new clothes, which is probably a kind gesture, but it kind of sends a message, right? Uh, What are you doing here? You got got to get dressed, right? (laughs) You got to pull yourself together here. Mordecai does not accept these clothes, which also sends a clear message. No, listen, Esther, 
I'm serious. This is that bad. And so she sends this servant, Hathik, to talk with Mordecai, to try and figure out what's going on. He gives, uh, he, he downloads Hathik on the details of this edict. He even gives him a copy of the edict to give and to send on to Esther. And it says in verse 8 that Mordecai told Hathik to explain this edict to Esther and command her to go to the king, to beg his favor, and to plead with him on behalf of her people, that is the Jews. So basically, he's saying, listen, Esther, you're the only one. You're the queen. You have to do something here. But instead, Esther sends Hathik back to Mordecai with another message. And in this message, she's basically explaining why, I'm sorry, but I cannot go to the king. Now, long story short, she had not been asked to see the king in his inner court that month. You have to remember, she's one of many wives, so that may have been commonplace. And there was a very strict law that if anyone appeared before this king in his inner court uninvited, they should be put to death. Now, we have already seen how brutal and ruthless this king is. Let's not forget that his former wife, Vashti, refused to appear when she was asked, and she was banished from the kingdom altogether. Let's not forget that some of his eunuchs were caught kind of talking badly about him, maybe planning a coup against him, and they were hanged at the gallows. So Esther would have to put herself in serious danger to do this. But there's one exception. The king could decide to let someone in, and the way he would decide to do that, if he sees them enter the court unannounced, the way he would decide was by this gesture of sort of holding out his golden scepter, right? You just picture this? Ah, yes, you may enter, right? Now, this is where the rubber really meets the road in our passage. It's in this next exchange between Mordecai and Esther, still via Hathik. But before we get to that exchange, I just want to pause. I want to envision how this all would have unfolded. I just want to consider this. Mordecai was asking Esther to appear before this pagan king unannounced at risk of dying to let him know that she all along has been a Jew but never told him and then to ask for some help, <laughs> right? He was asking her to stand with God and his people who were set to be exterminated by royal edict before the very king whose ring was sealed, used to seal that edict. So just imagine the trepidation. Just imagine the anxiety in her heart as she dressed up in these royal robes and then took that first step into the king's line of sight as he sat on the throne in that inner court. Just imagine. And then, even if he did hold out the golden scepter to her, imagine just her bracing herself as she told him, listen, you know, back when I won that queen competition, I guess I, you know, I guess I never told you this, but, you know, those, those people that you just said were going to kill, all of them next year, the Jews, I'm one of those. I'm one of them. Right? This would be terrifying. And in light of all that, let's just consider what Mordecai said to convince Esther she had to take that risk. 
Look with me at verse 13. Again, this is where the rubber meets the road. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Notice, Mordecai does not deny that standing with God and his people in this situation would be terribly risky. He knows that full well. It's probably why he instructed Esther not to tell the king that she was a Jew to begin with. It was his idea. Mordecai knew this would be incredibly dangerous, but for a few reasons, which we will explore, he encourages her to do it anyway. She does. It works. And then we're meant to learn something here from the way she goes about this whole process, okay? But first, I want to pause here. We're going to spend most of our time considering three reasons we must stand with God and his people. Three reasons we must stand. The first one is this, is that he will deliver them with or without us. He will deliver them with or without us. Clearly, Mordecai had taken to heart the two takeaways that we had from last week's passage, that first, we should expect opposition from an unjust world. That would not have been hard for him to see here. That's why he's lamenting. But also, even still, Mordecai really believed this. You can see it, that God would deliver his people somehow. Because here's the very first thing he says in response to Esther's hesitation. Again, verse 13, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise. It will rise for the Jews from another place. And he says, it it will be you, Esther, basically, who would perish. We'll get to that part. But I want you to notice Mordecai had no clue where this deliverance would come from. None. And yet, at the very same time, he was absolutely certain it would come. And that confidence really shaped the way he went about guiding and instructing Esther. As important as Esther may have seemed, Being in this position of power and privilege, Mordecai knew that the truth was God is about to deliver his people with or without Esther. Now, where would that deliverance come from if it didn't come from Esther? Oh, he had no clue about that. He just says another place, right? But in Mordecai's mind, the deliverance of God's people was a sure thing. He knew that God would get that done. Whether or not Esther would be included That remained to be seen. And in one sense, at least, it depended on whether or not she stood with this God and his people. Now, I want to briefly make the case, I think I need to briefly make the case, that when we think of God's people today, we should be thinking of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ made up of local churches like this one here. Now, when you think, okay, who are these people of God that I'm supposed to stand with? Look around the room. Here they are. This is them, okay? Jesus Christ is the ultimate Jew and the final fulfillment of the nation of Israel. He came down from heaven in sinless human flesh so that in him, by the power of his death 
and his resurrection, sinful people like us from all nations could be redeemed and welcomed into what he calls a new covenant family, the new covenant people of God. That is the church, which is what we, the members of Redemption Church, are all a part of together. As Paul says to a group of very real churches like ours, scattered throughout Galatia, he says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, that's what it means to be a Jew, heirs according to promise. In other words, you don't have to actually be a Jew by birth anymore. The way we enter this new covenant people is by faith in the Lord Jesus. It's by relying on his death and resurrection. It's by belonging to him. In, in Ephesians, Paul calls this very idea the mystery of the gospel. He says this mystery is that the Gentiles, non-Jews, are fellow heirs with the Jews, members of the same body, this new covenant people of God, and they are partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Church, from cover to cover, the Bible is very clear about this. As strange, no matter how strange or counterintuitive it may seem to our modern ears, it's also very clear right here in Esther that God is not interested in delivering a bunch of individuals. He is delivering a people. And in the same way that Esther needed to hear this, we need to hear it today. He is going to deliver his people, and he will do it either with or without us. As popular as it may be to sort of distance ourselves from the church today, you know, to be sort of spiritual but not religious, to get on well with Jesus but not necessarily his church. As your pastor, I just have to tell you, that is gobbledygook according to this book that we look at every week. It makes no sense. There is no such thing as standing with this God but not his people. That was the very thing, actually, that Esther would have been tempted at least to try, isn't it? She was fine. She's a queen. Mordecai is saying, listen, don't think to yourself that you will be safe on your own there in that cute little palace with your royal robes. No, in other words, listen, you don't get your own personal get-out-of-jail-free pass here, Esther, even as queen. Again, God is delivering a people. He always has been about delivering a people. And the question is this, are we one of those people or not? Will we stand with those people or not? Some of you are here today and you are professing believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, but for a number of reasons, you are, you're afraid or, or at least hesitant to be baptized, for instance, and or to join an actual church. Uh, it could be that you're afraid of what baptism and church membership might mean for certain relationships you have. Uh, with, with your parents, maybe, maybe a family member, a friend. What, what about them? Maybe even your unbelieving spouse. It could be that, you know, you've you kind of heard about these people of God, this whole church thing, and I got to tell you, from outside looking in, it sounds really dysfunctional. That's kind of why they're in exile, aren't they? Could be that you're intimidated to go public in this way because, well, what if, I, what if you just blow it? And what if you turn back to your sin someday? Well, actually standing with God and his people in this public way might make that actually much more painful if it were to happen. And the truth is it would. Whatever the reason, the temptation here is often to think, maybe it's just better to call myself a Christian without standing with God and his people. Now, if this describes you, I, I want to caution you in the same way that Mordecai cautions Esther here. 
Do not think to yourself that you will be safe. Whether or not you stand with God and his people, it doesn't work that way. Uh, If you choose not to stand with God and his people, deliverance will come for them. It will from somewhere, and it will be us. It is us who will perish. For many reasons, we are inclined to personalize and individualize the Christian faith. And in one sense, to be sure, our saving faith in Christ must be deeply both personal and individual. There is no question about this. Uh, But we often assume, well, since that's true, well, of course I can just be a follower of Jesus whether or not I stand with his people. Well, of course, this is just about me and it's about my personal relationship with Jesus, right? And I want to say, no, (laughs) it's not. There is a difference, listen, between a personal relationship and a private relationship. And I want you to see, that, that kind of a private relationship with God was not going to help Esther in this case at all. Friends, I pray we would all have a deep and intimate knowledge of Christ. I do. We must if we are to be God's people. That does not make us a chosen nation unto ourselves. We still have to stand with his people. What happened on that bloody cross and in that empty tomb was not just about me and Jesus. What happened on the bloody cross and in the empty tomb is about this God setting right all of creation so that he could finally ransom a people for himself from among every tribe and nation. And that people is what churches like ours are meant to be. And therefore, friends, when it comes to the church these days, we just have to have this confidence a deep and spiritual confidence rooted in the word of God that, listen, if we could just get in a time machine and travel a few hundred years into the future, if if Jesus had not come back at that point, listen, this world may be a terror. It may be some artificial intelligence wasteland. I don't know. But there will still be local churches like ours who read, who teach, and who celebrate and cherish the truths of this book together, the redemptive truths of God's grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. There will still be congregations gathering to make much of this resurrected King Jesus. So friends, don't give up on the church. Stand with her. Stand with her, even when it seems dangerous to stand with her, because this God will deliver his covenant people. He will. And he will do it with or without us. And when we understand that, I think it will really help us to make sense of this next reason for us to stand with God and his people. And that is number two, because we cannot escape the risk of perishing. We can't just escape it. Right? Right? The plane's not just going to land safely someday, in other words. We can't escape the risk. Notice, Mordecai says to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. In other words, you may seem safe now, You may feel great now as the the queen, right? But you won't be safe for long. And notice, this is so important that we catch this. It's not that Mordecai is saying, hey, those wicked Persians, they're going to get you. That's not what he's saying. It's that God will get her and her family. Listen, for if you keep silent at this time, Mordecai says, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, right? He's saying, we'll be fine. But you and your father's house will perish. It's so important. And then, having heard this, notice, Esther decides 
to go before this king and to risk her life, saying what? Quote, if I perish, I perish. So what changed? What changed for Esther? Well, at first she thought she could just avoid perishing by saying nothing, staying silent, and not going to the king. That seemed like a great option to her. But when Mordecai helped her to see that she was also at risk of perishing if she did not stand with this God before that king, and that that risk of perishing, if anything, was far greater, all of a sudden the thought of approaching this ruthless pagan king was not nearly so unbearable for her. You see that? She went from, Mordecai, if I do this, I might perish, to, no, if I perish, I perish, right? And church, in the same way, we have to decide whose condemnation we fear more. Is it the condemnation of this world, our unbelieving friends and family, for instance, or is it the condemnation of a sovereign God? These days, we are not expected to bow to pagan rulers, uh, so it can be difficult to relate to this fear of perishing, but we are expected to bow to the grandiose earthly power of individualism. We see this everywhere. The central doctrine of our day seems to be this idea, as the author Carl Truman defines it, that the greatest, most ultimate good is to express outwardly whatever it is that we feel inwardly. We have elevated the inner life of each individual above God, above others, and even in many ways above science these days. And as a result, we tend to treat our inner feelings and especially our inner feelings about ourselves like we might treat a tyrant pagan king who will kill us if we look at him the wrong way. I'm just convinced that in our day, most of the weightiest issues can be traced back to this, to expressive individualism, this idea that our godlike right, right, to express ourselves however it is that we want. Abortion, for instance, it's not just about abortion. It's about each woman's right to choose whether or not she wants to express her individuality by carrying a child to term and becoming a mother. And if a child in her womb gets in the way of her individualism, she should have the right to end its life. These days, our individual choices literally matter more to us. They're more prioritized than life itself. Uh, transgenderism is, is not just about gender. It's, it's about each individual's right to choose how they want to express themselves outwardly, even if it does not correspond with their biology. And if the rest of us, if we don't change our views on what it means to be a man and a woman, we, we are, we're bigots. These days, who we feel we are as individuals wins out every time over any other definition that might come from outside of us. The real issue here I want you to see under the surface is this new and radical obsession that we have with our individualism. If we question that, especially in the name of some God and his morally binding sacred text, my goodness, we will feel the fury of a thousand pagan kings. Some of you have been here before with close friends, family members, even employers. You have felt this risk of perishing if you speak and make it clear you're with God and his people in these ways. But listen, there is more than one fear of perishing that we have to account for here. There is. 
as he sent his disciples out to proclaim the good news of his gospel, here is Jesus' instruction to them in Matthew chapter 10. He said, what I tell you in the dark, say it in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops, right? Take a stand, let it be known, and do not fear those, he says, who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That one doesn't get on the Hobby Lobby plaques, right? (laughs) Church, it is, it is our fear of God. Listen, it is our fear of God. And his far greater, though admittedly more subtle power that should help us to overcome the fear of man. It should help us to overcome our need for this world's approval. But listen, here's what Jesus says next to sort of buoy our souls as we go out into this world with a message like that. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Right? They're worth almost nothing. And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, he says, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Church, It is terrifying to stand with this God. It can be terrifying to stand with him and his people, especially these days. But the Father is with us in it all. He is. We we are valuable to him. We are his people, right? So on one hand, we should fear him far more even than we fear the rejection of this world. On the other hand, we can be sure he loves us. He values us. He is sovereign over every hair on our head, over every bird that falls to the ground, over every earthly power. And so we can stand with him together. And in fact, we must. Because here is how Jesus concludes that little lesson he gave to his disciples as he sent them out into this world. He says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Church, we cannot escape the risk of perishing by simply avoiding the condemnation of this world. If we keep silent and try to hide our identity as God's people, then he will condemn us. As dangerous as it may seem to stand with this God and his people, listen, in the end, we will see it is the only safe place to stand. It's the only safe place. And finally, we should also stand with God and his people because, hey, who knows? God may use us in powerful ways. Look, sometimes the ruthless pagan king may just hold out his golden scepter to us, right? Our God is sovereign even over pagan rulers. Proverbs 21 says it this way, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. As Mordecai says here, at the end of his warning to Esther, who knows 
whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. In other words, even in the face of this great danger and risk, we have to hold out hope that the God we love is far more powerful than the powers that be and may even use us to overcome those powers in incredible, unexpected ways. And this, I think, speaks directly to the common temptation these days toward bitterness, toward cynicism, and just towards anger in response to this world's rejection of God and his people. I want you to notice, Mordecai does not tell Esther to go tear into that king and to shame him for his wicked rebellion against God. Instead, he tells her, go beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people, and he believes God's with them in all of that. Notice, he also does not shame Esther even for being in a position to do a thing like that. If anything, he wonders if it may have been God who put her in a position to do a thing like that for this very purpose. See, it's tempting to think, well, listen, if bad people do bad stuff out there in the world, well, then God must not be involved there, like, at all, as if he's not sovereign over that, of course. And this oversimplified view of God and his relationship to this world, it can really lead to a very unhealthy kind of, of separatism. It's the idea that because this world is so sinful, as God's people, we have to separate ourselves from it altogether at all costs. Uh, if you grew up in, in a more fundamentalist church, chances are this was explicitly taught there. Some churches actually include this doctrine of separation in their statement of faith. And to be honest, we may agree with most, if not all, of the rest of that statement of faith. But this here is very, very important. This has everything to do with the way we view and the way we engage with the world around us. I want to be very clear this morning. We are not a fundamentalist church. And that's on purpose. It's not because we're liberalizing like the rest of the culture. We love the scriptures. We trust the scriptures. It's not because we're flippant about holiness either. Here, listen, we don't have to separate ourselves from this world to live distinctly from this world, which we must do. It's because we refuse to use the Bible to justify our own self-righteous separation from this world when first we were delivered out of this sinful world as condemned sinners ourselves, not to mention, who knows whether we have not come to this kingdom for such a time as this. Who are you tempted to dismiss or to sort of distance yourself from because they're just too worldly? Who are you tempted to avoid because you know if they found out who you really were and what you really believed about Jesus, about sin and salvation, you might perish? And could it be that God has put you there, that God has put you in that very relationship for that very purpose so that you might stand with him and his people. Friends, what if your standing with God and his people actually changes those who you fear in this way? What if rather than causing you harm, doing this actually brings them healing and grace? I think this means we move toward the world even when it's particularly dark and dangerous, like our Lord who dined with tax collectors and sinners, right? It means sometimes we approach the ruthless king even if he may banish or kill us. My goodness, why in the world would he do that? Because who knows? God may have put us in that very situation for such a time as this. Church, this has to change the way we think about our place in the world. 
even a sinful, fallen, and often dangerous world. We have to stand with God and his people, even when it's terrifying, because he sometimes puts his people in dark and terrifying situations so that he can use them for his greater and more ultimate purposes. Now, in most cases, I'd probably end the sermon right now. I'd probably wrap up with a conclusion. Um, But there are just a few other practical applications I think we have to see here. So hang with me. Next, I want to just briefly consider three ways we should stand with God and his people. In other words, what does the kind of, of spiritual quality and character of this sort of life look like? How does it work? First, we should stand with God and his people courageously. Now, this is probably the clearest in the passage. I trust it's been very clear in the sermon as well. We won't spend much time on this. But suffice to say, if we are only willing to stand for the things this world will applaud us for, we will never stand with God and his people. Never. We need the courage to stand with Christ and his church, even when it is dangerous to do that. And let's pray God would give us that courage even today. Next, we should also stand with God and his people winsomely. Winsomely. Now we're getting to the feasts. To be winsome means to be attractive or appealing in appearance or character. In other words, not just posting YouTube videos of silly pagans being destroyed by our favorite podcast hosts. Right? It's not winsome. (laughs) I want you to picture Esther sitting at these feasts with these two men, just knowing that according to the edict that they just wrote and delivered, by all accounts, in a a few months' time, she should be executed. Picture that. And I want you to picture her passing the butter with a sweet and pleasant smile on her face. Here you go, King Ahasuerus. Now, is she being sneaky? Is she being disingenuous? No, she's being winsome. She's being winsome. Rather than pushing her enemies away, she is bringing them close in hopes of establishing a kind of trust and rapport that God could then and will then use to glorify himself and to deliver his people. Listen, it is not a bad thing for us to seek the trust and respect of others in this world so long as we have the courage to stand with God's people whether or not we get it. It is not a bad thing for us to even serve and to seek the welfare of this world so long as we have the courage to stand with God's people, whether or not they receive our care. And this is different, by the way, than being seeker-sensitive. The problem with being seeker-sensitive is that often what this world wants and therefore what we have to be so sensitive to is for God's people to bow to them. Too often, this seeker-sensitive impulse leads us to be not only winsome, but frankly, just capitulating. Saying whatever we have to to get this world to just stop opposing us and please, please, please start liking us, please. Oh, you don't want to be accountable to anyone. You don't want to make a public profession of faith in the Lord Jesus in the midst of this dangerous world. Here, listen, we are so sorry for all these terribly insensitive churches who have so offended your sensibilities. We have made a new kind of church that is very sensitive to your sinful urge to be treated as if you are the God of your own life. We should not be sensitive to Haman's desire to steal worship from God. Esther is not, but she does prepare him a feast. She does. Because it's hard to hate someone who fills your belly with warm, 
and delicious food. It is good, it is right, it is just wise to be winsome in the way we stand with God and his people. And finally, we should stand with God and his people patiently, patiently. Carrie and I read this earlier this week together, and when we got done reading it, immediately one of the first questions that she raised, I thought it was a good question, is, wait, I thought Esther just threw a feast for these guys, and then it seems like she throws another one. So what's, what's the point of the two feasts one day after another? And I have to be honest, I didn't really have a good answer. It didn't make much sense to me either. But having considered and studied it a bit more, I think we're supposed to feel the urgency of this opportunity Esther had. Listen, all of her people were at risk of perishing. She was the only one who could do anything about it. The threat was public. It was powerful. It was very real. And yet she did not panic. She didn't rush into this king's presence demanding he's changed his mind. No, with this hope, who knows? Maybe God put me in this place for such a time as this. With this hope, if I perish, I perish. She took her time patiently pursuing a path forward, waiting for the right moment and circumstance to speak. And in the same way, rather than just trying to force our way into positions of influence in the world today, we have to be patient. We have to be wise in the way we stand with God's people, looking for ways to establish this kind of trust and rapport so that God can work through these things for his purposes. And so church, let's stand together with God and his people. Let's do it courageously. Let's do it winsomely. Let's do it patiently. Yes and amen. But we must do it. We must do it. And if we perish in an earthly sense, we perish. But praise God, as Christians, we have this great hope to cling to that God so loved the world He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Church, Jesus came to perish for us so that we could have the hope of his deliverance. Let's stand with our crucified king and the rest of his people. No, 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 not actually stand. It was the whole sermon was about stand. Okay, all right, no. Let's stand with God and his people even when it's terrifying.